Before we get into the word in earnest, give our complete attentiveness to what the Spirit is saying to this church today. We live in a time when many people are clamoring for attentiveness and attention, and groups are clamoring for attention, but there's one group today that, as we know, does deserve not only our attention, but our gratitude. In the recent republication of our series, P-Tackle, as it's affectionately called, Principles of Transcendence Applied to Christian Living, back in 2009. Since then, I've added a sixth transcendent principle, and we'll be developing it along the road in Pete and Hebrews, especially in uh, 1228. And that one is be grateful. And we have much to be grateful for today, and not least, we are grateful for veterans of the Armed Services of the United States of America, and I want you, please, if you will, and if you can, to stand if you are. And that class of folks, please stand, veterans. In the Holy Spirit room, God told us, we want to Today I'm going to be speaking, and you will, some of the Greek words I say today, as usual, because I'm an exegetical creature by calling, some of the Greek words I use today will be appearing in print, so you won't be spelling them all out today, but they will be in the printed version of this. Usually on Mondays I spend the first three or four hours editing the message that I preached on Sunday so it can be in some kind of a legible written form because when all that's in cyberspace disappears someday there'll be a written word somewhere there'll be a written passage if you think about people like Jeremiah whose career in proclaiming the word is 40 years long and yet what we have left is the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations that's it the written concentration of his message. So I like to make every message the kind that if it were the only written piece of writing to survive after some form of catastrophe that it might be somewhat beneficial to generations to come. So we're going to consider that. And today's message is going to be called the Triple Hapax. The Triple Hapax. Hapax is one of the key words in Hebrews. It simply means once spelled H-A-P-A-X, means once without repetition, once, or as the Brits say, one-off, a singular, unique happening, and the word is used in many key places in the scripture. Hebrews has it as a catchword or a keyword, along with the word F-H-A-P-A-X, which is a, the same word, only preceded by a slight prefix. In our passage today, Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, we have a triple use of that word once. It's hammered. And the word of God, of course, is like a hammer, according to Jeremiah 23, 29. It breaks the rock in pieces. It breaks the stony heart in pieces, as it were. And we're going to be hammering today that triple apex. And what I've called Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, where we are now located, to give a step back and give a kind of a wider view, 
Hebrews 9, 24 to 28 is what I call the apocalypse of the three appearings. The apocalypse of the three appearings. Some passages of scripture, like 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, form what has been called a micro-apocalypse. It's sort of like a glorious revelation of the majesty of God in Jesus Christ in a startling apocalyptic way. And there are several micro-apocalypses in the scripture, and this is one of them, Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, the apocalypse of the three appearings. What we also have in this passage is the triple hapax, the three uses of the word hapax, which is once and once and for all. And it's emphasized in some extraordinary ways. So today I'm going to take you on a little bit of a roller coaster because my style of exegesis is to take us all over the place. But you will, I think when we're done, you're going to see this passage. But more than that, you're going to see Jesus in this passage. The whole series is called We See Jesus. And we've been on it now for 315 hours together. This is the 316th. We see Jesus. We're instructed every time we meet together to turn our attention away from all else and all others and all people and all events and circumstances and to look unto Jesus who is the author and perfecter of faith and who having suffered intolerable and unbelievable hostility of sinners against himself endured the cross after that which is the incomprehensible endurance of the death, of the cross, by which he experienced fully and totally and drank to the dregs the cup of the sins of the whole world and tasted the death that is the wages of sin for everyone so that no one dies that death. Even though we all die at the end of the, our lives, with some exceptions, we end our temporary stint in this half of the created universe. The other half is called heaven. We begin our life with birth. We end our life usually by what is called death. It's not because of the wages of sin that we die. It's because it's God's blessing for us to end our stint in this evil age and on this side of his created cosmos. The cosmos or the universe is a creation of God and it has two halves as it were. It's an integral cosmos. We live right now in the earthly part of that cosmos. There is another side of the universe called the Godward side. That's where Jesus is. He's invisible to us, but he is going to be visible to not only to us, but to all. The so-called living in the dead in all generations, every eye will see him, and to see him is to experience him, and to experience him is to experience salvation. For his name, Yeshua, means salvation. So we're dealing with a triple hapax, but we're dealing with the apocalypse of the three appearings. We're dealing with the section of scripture within the heavenly homily called Hebrews, Hebrews is a homily sent from heaven. It's the word, the Lord speaking from heaven. And that's exactly what Hebrews is. It's the Lord speaking to us from heaven. Hebrews 12, 25 and 26. 
and in fact 27 indicates that. So I call it a heavenly homily. The author is unknown. Well, it's known to God. He's known to God. And within that heavenly homily, we have this apocalypse of three appearings. These three are, first, the appearings once, hapax, of the Messiah, that's Jesus, at the termini of the ages for the putting away of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Sacrifice being thusia, as we've seen, by the sacrifice of himself. That's, in our case, the first appearing. That's Hebrews 9.26b, if you have your text in front of you. And that's the same as the appearing in which Messiah, Jesus Christ, was having been once offered up. You see, in the beginning of 9.28, we see a repetition of this first appearing. And it says there that he was once, again, half-ax, offered up. The word prospero is used there for the verbal form of the word prospero, which means offering, for the assuming of the judgment by death. It doesn't just say for the bearing of the sins of many. The point here is that he assumed the judgment. He took up upon himself the judgment of the sins of many. We've explained that means all people of all times. So that's all part of the first appearing. First, the sacrifice of himself. And second, his being offered to bear the sins of many. That's a quote of Isaiah 53, 12, incidentally. That all happened in his first appearing. It happened at the juncture of the ages. It happened at the cross point, the termini of the old covenant age, and the point of origin of the new everlasting covenant age. And so that's the first appearing. The second appearing is, this is, can be a little confusing, but I'll, I'll, I've explained it before and I'll explain it again. The second appearing gets the word second, and that's Hebrews 9.28b. He will appear a second time, and that word deuteros means second. It's the adjective deuteros, deuteronomy, which means the second law. Deuteros, he will appear a second time. That's when he appears universally and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's shocking because to see him is to be saved and even those who pierced him will see him and be saved. We are saved not by our faith, but by Christ's faithfulness. We are saved by his obedience to the extent of the death of the cross and the cross and not by our own faith or faithfulness. He has shown mercy to us all. And so we have then the first appearing, the second appearing being the one that we are imminently expecting in which he will appear to everyone. That's when it's not so much we look up into the sky to see if we can find him somewhere, but the second half of the cosmos, the heavens, are suddenly manifested in our presence and him living in the heavens comes manifest in our presence. There's much more we'll say about that, but I want to hone in on a couple of special features here today. So, in this appearing, the word, the noun for sacrifice and the verb meaning to offer are used. Both sacrifice and offering can be used of what occurred on the cross. He sacrificed himself for us at the termini of the ages but he also offered himself 
at that same moment. There was an offering of himself as a sin offering. But he was also offered in the passive sense. God the Father offered him, but he willingly offered himself. Offering and sacrifice both work for what Jesus did on the cross. Sacrifice doesn't work for his third appearing. That is, when he appears before the face of God in heaven, it's not sacrifice, but offering. Only offering works for that which we call the third appearing. So sacrifice is used, is used exclusively for the pouring out of Messiah's life in death on the cross and not for the presentation of himself before God in heaven where he now continually appears. That's what I call the third appearing even though it's not chronologically third. He presently appears before the face of God for us, interceding for us in the power of an indestructible life that he may save us completely. That's 7.16 and 7.25. So I call this appearing Jesus' third appearing, not because it's third chronologically, but because his universal appearance has already claimed the adjective deuteros, meaning second in Hebrews 9.28b. So let me read the whole passage before we hone in on some special features of the passage. 9.24 For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made by hands. That's like the Old Testament priest under the law, the Levitical cultists, where they went in once a year to the Holy of Holies with the blood of animals. The Messiah, that's Jesus, did not enter a sanctuary or a tent made by hands, a mere replica of the true but into heaven itself, that incomprehensible and presently inaccessible half of the created universe, into heaven itself, now to appear, please notice that, now appearing. We could have a little sign in front of a theater, now appearing. Now to appear before the face of God for us. That's the third appearing in this apocalypse of three appearings. Not to offer himself many times, as typified by the action of the archpriest of the Levitical order, who enters into the sanctuary yearly with the blood belonging to another. That's my expanded translation. Verse 26, for if that were the case, if he was like the Levitical priest, if that were the case, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But as it is now, once, Hapax, at the termini of the ages, for the removal of sin, that's powerful, the removal of sin itself. Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of what? Of the world, the whole cosmos. For the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is all occurring in the appearing, the first appearing at the termini of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of, self, of himself, he has been manifested. And just as it is appointed, and we're going to home in on this verse today, verse 27, just as it is appointed for people, human beings, to die once, hapax. The word hapax is, the, is here is the focus and the emphasis and the edges sharpened on the whole idea, the once and for all and for all. I'm going to coin that phrase today. Once and for all and for all. 
Jesus Christ's sacrifice is not only once and for all without repetition, but it's for all humanity, all people of all times and places throughout all of history. And we're going to demonstrate that. Because, well, for example, in Hebrews 2, 8, 9, we don't see everything under his feet yet. We see quite the opposite. We see humanity in disarray and confusion. We see the results of the human condition expressing, expressing itself in violence, in horrible acts of violence, and in confused people across this world. We see this, we don't see everything under his feet, but we do see Jesus. In this meantime, we do see Jesus who experienced death, that is the wages of sin for everyone. So that's a death that no one experiences but him. We don't die because of the wages of sin. Jesus died because of the wages of sin. We die as a blessed release from our time in this world. It's a blessing. Our death is a blessing. It's our release. It's our liberation into life indeed in the presence of God. And then we enter all of a sudden into Jesus' time. And all time is simultaneous in him. And so we enter into something that can't even be described on this side. And the glory of it, the majesty of it, is so powerful as to defy description, of course. So, just as it is appointed for people to die once, and with, or we could even say after or beyond, this death, judgment. And so we could say that at judgment, there, at death, there is also a fire of sorts, not one that is horrible or terrible, but one that purifies the life that we lived in this life, so that we are in the presence of God, totally sanctified, and we are purged and purified of all the junk that we did in this life that isn't worth preserving. A lot of it being religious, a lot of it being ritual, a lot of it being a lot of different things. Some of it overt, sinfulness, etc., but it's all gone. So just as it's appointed for people to die only once, and with this death, judgment, so also Christ, so also Christ, having been, here it is again, once, once offered up for the assuming of the judgment by death. Now when it says here, this is my expanded translation, when it says for the bearing of the sins of many, taken from Isaiah 53, 12, for the bearing of the sins of the many, that means for the assuming of the judgment by death of the sins of many, meaning all people, will appear that means this time he will become visible. The, the Greek word you will see in the Greek tense, in, in the future passive indicative tense. He will appear a second time without sin to those eagerly awaiting him for salvation. Up the road a little bit I'm going to show you that those who are eagerly awaiting him are those that include the, whom we perceive as the dead or the sleeping in Jesus. The sleeping is a, it's a metaphor. The dead aren't really dead, and that's according to the wisdom of Solomon, which Peter refers to in 1 Peter 4, 6. When people die physically, we say they are dead. They are the dead after they die, but they're not dead. The Bible teaches that they're rather experiencing the light of glory, and they are in perfect peace. And so there aren't 
people who are dead in that sense. So we're going to be dealing with that. So those who are eagerly waiting him include that the dead for whom Christ died and the living for whom Christ died, all people of all times, but not only all people of all times, but all creation. In Romans 8, 19, that is eagerly waiting, oddly enough, for the liberation that comes when the apocalypse of the sons of God comes. All that I hope to hammer out down the road. But let's look at the onces again. Once again, the onces. First, once, half-acts, at the termini of the ages for the removal of sin itself by the sacrifice of himself. In other words, when Christ was once offered, half-acts, for the assuming of the judgment by death of the sins of all people. That's the first half-acts. Second half-acts, Christ Jesus now appears before the face of God for us. That's the second appearing, rather. He now appears before the face of God for us. We are in him as he stands before God. Because he says in Isaiah 8.18, quoted in Hebrews 2.13, Here I am with the children that you have given me. He represents us all before the Father as, right, as the righteous one. Incidentally, that song, The Righteous One, we sang today, Vicki, let's do that at the end today instead of the other usual thing. I like that song. Because I like it, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> so, let's do that one. I like that one. Good one to end on. So then, once, at the term of the ages, he put away sin. Two, Christ now appears before the face of God for us. Hebrews 9.24, Christ Jesus will appear. That means become visible. And that's ophthesitai. That's a future active or passive indicative. He will be made visible a second time. Now that has to do with, just to give you a preview of things to come, preview of coming attractions. The second time the archpriest appears is very anticipated because he goes into the Holy of Holies and if he doesn't do it right and if he's not qualified as the right representative or if he does what Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, did, that they offered strange fire, they don't come out again. They die before the Lord right there in the Holy of Holies. So they got to be dragged out. And so, so obviously when the priest goes in with the blood of the sacrifice, all Israel is looking on because he appears and then he says, okay, I'm going in. And then they wait for him very eagerly, I would think. Because if he comes out the other side, he's, he does this, Kevin. He does two hands up in the air. He says, Accept, it's accepted. So for another year, you guys are clear. So they eagerly awaited that, the second appearing of what? The great priest or the arch priest. So this is how he applies this to the second appearing of Jesus Christ, our great arch priest, which won't be just to Israel. And it won't be just to clear them for a year. It'll be all humanity at all its times and clear them forever. Because his death is not only once and for all, it's once and for all, for all. Once and for all, for all. And that's what Hebrews is all about. Hebrews is a heavenly homily, God speaking from heaven into our time, just as much as he spoke into the time of the original readers of this great homily and epistle. So very notable in this micro-apocalypse is the triple appearance of the adverb, hapax, meaning once without need of repetition. 
One, Christ appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, that's the pouring out of his life into death. In it, two, it's normally appointed for human beings to die once, that's normal, but it's not exclusive. It's not the exclusive way out of here. And three, Messiah Jesus was offered once to take on himself, offered as passive, he was offered by the Father. Anapharaoh is to take up, is active. He actively took up upon himself the consequences or the penalty or the wages of the sins of many, and we've shown that many means all. So let's home in on the second half acts. You didn't expect this probably, but I'm going to call this one once to die. In Hebrews 9.27, to put a sharper edge on the singularity of Christ's sacrifice and its opposition to the many sacrifices offered under the law, the writer talks about the common occurrence of human death. The common occurrence of human death. In my position, I've been very close to death all my life because even as an altar boy, they always called me up when funerals were had in North Bank and Vermont at St. John the Baptist. And I always had to get up at six in the morning and go to do that and uh, serve the altar as an altar boy. And I was always very glad because the priest always gave me a dollar. But then I've done probably 300 funerals since I've been here. And it's there's always something about it. There's always something that you consider about each person who passes into the presence of the Lord. And I'm considering more and more now that death is, despite the occurrences around it, despite its circumstances sometimes, is definitely a blessing for the one who passes into the presence of the Lord. So I want to home in on the second half acts in Hebrews 9.27. Put a sharper edge on this word once regarding Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Previously in Hebrews 7, 8, the priests of the Old Covenant who received tithes are called men who die. It's normal to refer to people as people who die. There are men who died on battlefields across this world so that you could be free to be a jerk if you want to be. You could be free to come to church and not really listen because you're listening and you're thinking about what you're going to do afterwards. Or you can be free to be an attentive believer, listening to the Word of God and recognizing that's the most important thing you can do in this life, bar none. But you're free, and the freedom is maintained, as we know, through military sacrifice. The greater freedom that was won by Jesus Christ is a freedom from every yoke of slavery, including the slavery of sin, the slavery of death, the slavery of fear, the slavery of guilt. And that's what we're here for, to proclaim that victory. So in Hebrews 7, 8, men who die are the men who receive tithes in the Old Testament. And so men and women commonly die. Commonly die. People, as a matter of course, die. Will and testament, or the wills, go into effect when people die according to Hebrews 9, 17, and only then. Only then does a will or a will and testament go into effect and the inheritance delivered only when people die. And so people normally die. And when they die, they die once, without repetition. And that's final. 
not to be repeated. That's the point he's making, not to be repeated, not many times. Now there are exceedingly rare exceptions to this rule. Being Lazarus for one, and Lazarus was dead, and it was the fourth day when he stinketh that he was raised from the dead. And apparently the memory of what he saw on the Godward side of the universe was taken away from him because he did die after subsequently to that. In fact, the Pharisees were after him to kill him because he was the proof of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. People don't like that. They hate it today as they hated it then. And so Lazarus is one of the extraordinarily rare exceptions. There's another one called the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7, 12 to 15. Jesus, as God himself, Yahweh, had special care for the kind of suffering that happens with widows and their pain and suffering. And this widow had actually lost a child and asked Jesus to intervene. So he raised that child from the dead in Nain on the way to Jerusalem. That was a rare exception of this rule that people commonly die once. And in Hebrews 11.35, we learn of women who received back their dead by resurrection in this life. Of course, the life is coming when women who have lost their children will receive them back in resurrection, of course, what a day that will be. It will be a glorious day. But there have been cases, rare cases, like the widow at Zarephath, by a miracle accomplished by God through Elijah, 2 Kings 4.32, also the Shunammite woman's son, by a miracle via Elisha. Cases which illustrate the general principle. Though these are rare exceptions, they only point out the general rule, the general rule that people die once, and that's common, and that's normal. These, like the miracles that Jesus did, which manifested forth his glory, are the kind of miracles which will become definitive and universal at the end of all time in his coming again. When he appears again, all will be raised from the dead. And the kind of miracles that he did in his 40-day stint after resurrection will become universal and definitive. And so what we want to do now is to take Hebrews 27 in the case of people dying normally once and go into the uncommon case of Enoch, which is found in Hebrews 11.5. This is a weird way of exegeting. You won't find it in any commentary. So if you have this writing tomorrow, you have an exceedingly rare piece of writing. Uncommon case of Enoch. Because it will become accumulated momentum later in Hebrews, I want to consider the extraordinary exception of the antediluvian personage named Enoch. Death was a pretty big deal back in Enoch's time, because before the flood, it was common to have an obituary like this. Adam lived 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 900 and some years, and he died. Methuselah lived 962 years, or 969 rather, and died and Seth, etc. And so when someone left, leave that, lived that long, if you didn't like them, you'd say, I thought they'd never get out of here. I thought they'd never die. And perhaps if they had an unhappy marriage, the wife was saying, finally. But uh, 
But it was quite a big deal to have someone die back then because they lived 900 years and they were patriarchs of a kind or elders, they were called presbyteroi. They were very celebrated personages in the time before the flood. And one of note is Enoch. He's called Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam in Jude 1.14. This very unusual case serves to further put an edge on the point that generally people die and they die once. Once is the key word, the catch word here. Of Enoch it is said that he did not experience death, however. He did not experience death. But God transferred him. Time for the transfer. Permanent alteration of your somatic station. Enoch is first mentioned in Genesis 5. You can go there if you want. I'm just going to hit a couple points there. In the context of the commonality of death from Adam onward in temporal human history. For example, Genesis 5.5, Adam, it says, in the, in the basic Bible in basic English said, he came to his end. And that's true because dying is we come to our end of this temporary existence on this half of the integral cosmos called the earthly, the temporal. And we enter into the Godward side of the universe where Jesus is standing before the Father, appearing before the Father for us at death, at the end. We come to our end. But the word is plainly used in the Greek text, apothnesko, death, died. Adam came to his end, or died, after 930 years. We would say, as we do, when someone said, when my dad passed away at age 86, his doctor said to, to us, well, he had a good run. Well, I think 930 is a pretty good run. Adam came to his end after 930 years. Seth died, Genesis 5.8, after 912 years. Enosh, not to be confused with Enoch, Enosh died in 5.11 after 905 years. Kenan died in verse 14 after 910 years. Mahalalel, Mahalalel, rather, died after 895 years in Genesis 5.17. So you're reading a series of obituaries here, and all of a sudden we get to Jared. It says when Jared was 162 years old, he fathered Enoch. That's Genesis 5.18. And after Enoch was born, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters in 519. Then Jared died after living a total of 962 years in 520. But here we go. Enoch, at age 65, fathered Methuselah. Methuselah's name means when he dies it shall come. And when he died the flood came. Of course it was a prophetic name. Enoch, at age 65, he was a young man, as we, some of us are today. When we hit, I had 65, I began to think about middle age down the road. But at age 65, he fathered Methuselah. After Methuselah was born, according to most English translations that come from the Hebrew Masoretic text, which is inferior to the Greek text, incidentally, 
After Methuselah was born, according to most English translations of Genesis 5.22, it says Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Now you think if you had 300 years, you might get it right. I'm thinking, Lord, if you gave me 300 years, I might get it right walking before you. The Greek text, however, which is to be preferred because the Hebrews author uses the Greek text, and it's different from the Hebrew text from which we get most of our English translations. The Greek text says that Enoch fathered Methuselah at 165 years of age, Genesis 5.21, and that after the birth of Methuselah, Enoch was well-pleasing to God. It doesn't say he walked with God in the Greek text. It says Enoch was well-pleasing, aristactive indicative of the Euaresto to God for 200 years following the birth of Methuselah. So following the birth of Methuselah, Enoch was pleasing to God. Was he before then? Doesn't say. He might have sowed his wild oats before then. Who knows? He might have been a prodigal type of guy before then. But after the birth of his son Methuselah, and this happens to a lot of men, they change after the birth of their child or something. They, they say, well, maybe I'll start behaving or maybe I'll take care of myself now. I want to live long enough to bless this child and, you know, be around for him or whatever. But the, the point being here, either way you slice it, at 165 Enoch fathered Methuselah, and then for 200 years, Enoch was well-pleasing to God. The Hebrew translation says Enoch walked with God for 300 years. The Greek text, which the Hebrews author puts to into play, if you want to turn to Hebrews 11.5, we'll look at that. The Greek text that he was, says he was well-pleasing to God. Then in Genesis 5.23, it says he lived a total of 365 years. So both the Hebrew and the Greek translations say he lived for 365 years. We have 365 days in a year. So this is a good way of saying he lived a full life. He lived his full stint here. He did the full year. He was, he pleased, imagine pleasing God for 200 years. And he did. He lived, didn't mean he pleased people for 200 years. It means he pleased God for 200 years, which means he probably displeased a lot of people in his 200-year stint. Because, of course, we know from later on in Genesis 6 that what happened among humanity is that all their thoughts became evil continually. All their thoughts and intention became evil continually. Now that's happening in our country today. That's happening across the world today in many millions and millions of people, if not billions. The thoughts of their hearts are only evil continually because they're indoctrinated into such evil ideologies that they are totally antagonistic to God and in complete opposition to Him. And so we need, and one thing I agree with all preachers about, we need a Word of God revival and a reawakening of the Word of God, especially with USSJC at the prime focus. Jesus Christ and Him crucified 
as the universal savior. That has to be at the forefront. That's the only hope for our nation, the only hope for our generation and the generation to come. And so, Euresto is used twice in the Greek translation of Genesis then. It says it twice. He pleased God. He pleased God. Euresteo is used in the perfect active indicative form also in Hebrews 11.5 if you want to turn there. The Hebrews author is, even from the human standpoint, ingenious. He is, the genius incidentally, genius is a noun. When you say someone is genius, you mean he is ingenious or she is ingenious. Or you can say she is a genius. We don't say she's genius. You say she is ingenious or she is a genius. But that's my, don't forget, I'm, I'm a literary legalist. But anyways, had to mind a major in English, but I still flunk the structures of the English language. Go figure. So that's because God said, you don't need English, you need Greek. Euresto, used twice in Hebrew. So it, as it's used twice in Genesis to emphasize that Enoch pleased God, it's used twice in Hebrews to show that, one, Enoch pleased God, but then he develops a doctrine in 11.6 to say this, without faith, it is impossible to be pleasing to God. So the point is, Enoch was pleasing to God because of his faith. Piste is used over and over again in Hebrews. That starts a spark, that starts a fire, that shows all the people who brought pleasure to God because of believing, because of faith. Faith, our faith isn't that which, which justifies us. We receive faith as a gift after God justifies us by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Faith is an extraordinarily wonderful gift to live by and it has with it great reward. Faith in continuous mode becomes confidence. Confidence has with it a great reward. One of the rewards that we have from faith is, is Enoch's reward. God rewarded him with transferring him out of here. Straight out of here, not straight out of Compton, straight out of the cosmos, straight out of this part of the cosmos, right into that Godward side of the cosmos, transferred, wholesale. A search was made for him, they never found him. Of course not. And that should be that way with all of us when we walk with God. When we please God, we may not be found by our friends anymore. Where are you? You don't go with us anymore to such and such a place to do such and such a thing. Where'd you go? We can't find you. That's right, because the old man's been put off. The new man's been put on. That's, a, that's an application of this. And so he uses the principle that Enoch pleased God for 200 years because he constantly believed God. And in the believing, we experience the joy and the peace of believing. Faith does not justify us, but faith is a gift given to us after our justification so that we can experience the peace and joy of the kingdom of God and a future world in the present tense. So that's why we should take verses like John 3.16, which were always misquoted because they always throw hell in there with perishing. The scripture says in John 3.16, God loved the world in this remarkable way 
He gave his son so that whoever is believing in him not only not perishes, God is not willing that any should perish, but that believing we have life now in the present, we have the life of the coming age in the present. Believing is the privileged gift of faith by which we experience in some measure the life of the age to come, the life that is had in the heavenly side of the cosmos now, and we have it now. Believing is not that which saves us from going to hell. Believing is the other side of remaining under the wrath of God. To remain under the wrath of God simply means to be living in this evil age without faith, that's all. It's not going to hell. And so that whole doctrine about going to hell can go to hell. So then, let's get back to the usual way that people come to the end of their existence on this side of the created universe. The physical, or corporeal, let's call it, the death of the body, corporeal death. The corporeal death of human beings is followed by judgment. In fact, it's probably even a company, it could even be, and this again is speculation, but we'll get to it more and hammer it more. It could be that death, our end at this time, is then accompanied right after. Our death isn't a judgment, but it's followed right after by a judgment that purifies all that we did in our body in this life. That it would, what we call the judgment seat of Christ will all appear there. 2 Corinthians 5.10 This all goes into the whole definition of time and eternity, which I don't have time to develop. So. The point is, our death is followed by, maybe instantly, judgment. The difference with Jesus is Jesus' death, corporeal, when he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, was following, his death followed judgment. Where in his dying on the cross, in his pouring out of himself on the cross, he was experiencing the judgment for sin. God was condemning in his flesh sin itself. He was pouring himself out into death for our sins. So when Jesus died physically, his judgment was behind him. When we die physically, our judgment is slightly ahead of us and may even sort of accompany that moment. For Jesus, his death followed, his physical death or corporeal death followed his judgment, followed judgment. And so the corporeal death of Jesus was preceded by judgment, which is the judgment of the judge as the judged for all human beings. Corporeal death is the usual end and exit from life on this side of the created cosmos. It is not the only way that human beings exit, however, or come to an end of their time in this world. It's not the only way. Indeed, it doesn't have to be. For as Paul proclaims a mystery, we shall not all sleep. Now why is the word sleep used? It means death. Jesus said, Lazarus, our brother, is sleeping. And they said, well, if he's just sleeping, let somebody just tell him to wake him up. And Jesus said to them, I mean, he's dead. He's dead. Lazarus is dead. He's dead. And so sleeping is a euphemism for death. We say sleep because to us, death looks like sleep from our side. 
the person who died looks like they're asleep or they fell asleep. And that's when I saw my dad and he passed away, it was as if he slept. He slept, in my view. It was like our family, my sisters and my mom and Pam, we all saw it as if he went to sleep. And it happened to be that on the radio, my uncle Ray was singing a jigger of moonlight, just a jigger of moonlight, the song. My dad went out on that song. He was being serenaded by my mom's brother. It was an inter that was a weird thing, but it, to us, he went asleep. But it's talking about being asleep in Jesus as those that have died in Jesus. But we will not all sleep, Paul said. We're not all going to sleep the sleep of death. And you go, whoa, that's a mystery. And he said, it, it is a mystery. We will not all sleep, he said, but we will all be changed. All of us will be changed. Whether by death or by some other way, we will all be changed. And that's important. And this is an imminent happening. In fact, we'd have to call, we better call Paul. In a minute, we'll, we'll call Paul. It's, it's 1, 2, 3, 5, 5, 5, 5, 5, 5, 5. Remember that, that's his number. 1, 2, 3, Trinity, 5, 5, 5, Grace, 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 5, 5, 5, 5, Grace, 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 Grace. Paul's number. I'm going to call him in a minute. He's, he's on hold, but we'll get back to him. So, corporeal death is the usual end and exit from life on this side of the created cosmos. It's not the only way that human beings exit, however. But here it says, in the case of Enoch, in Hebrews 11.5, by faith, peace day, that's how he pleased God, Enoch was transferred. Transferred. He underwent a change of station, evidently from the earthly to the heavenly side of the integral created cosmos, not to see death. See means experience, not to experience death. We will not all sleep. Enoch didn't. Enoch didn't see death. Because God transferred him for before his removal. Notice that. Before his removal, it was testified of him that he pleased God. Hebrews author uses not the Hebrew text, but the Greek text. It's usually, but not exclusively, that human beings come to the end of their temporal existence, which James likens to the brief appearance and quick disappearance of a mist, which is what we see from, for example, steam rising from a boiling pot or cauldron or a teapot. We see steam rising, then it's not there at all. That's how this life is in the light of eternity, in the light of time as Jesus is Lord of time on the other side. So let's look at it again in Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was transferred not to experience death because God transferred him for before his relocation, metathesis here, metathesis really, it was testified of him that he pleased God. The Greek text reads this way, and Henoch, or Enoch, was well-pleasing to God, and he was not found because God transferred him. So the Hebrews author uses the Greek text. From Genesis 5.24, the Hebrews homilist, therefore, gets that Enoch pleased God. The Genesis author put this 
first. The Hebrews author put it last for emphasis. Both Genesis 5.24 and Hebrews 11.5 says that Enoch was not found because God transferred him. He was not found implies that a, an unsuccessful search was made for him. And because he pleased God, the search was probably made for him by two kinds of people. Some, one saying, where is Enoch? The other is saying, where is that bastard? Anyway, but anyways, he was not found. I just wanted to wake up a couple of you. He was not found because he was no longer in his own given time, in the kind of time that we're allotted, which was given to us. How many years will you be given? I don't know. How many I will be given? I don't know. He was given 365 years. That was his given time, his allotted time. And in his allotted time, he had this testimony. He pleased God. He did not fear. He believed. He believed what Jesus said and obeyed him. And Jesus said, do not fear, only believe. That's the kind of life that pleases God. And I hope you have many years where you please him by believing. For this was his time in this side of the created world. The second implication of this to look at my watch so that you don't miss the Steeler game. The second implication is that he was transferred to the incomprehensible and inaccessible side of the created cosmos, the Godward side of the universe where God's throne is. And it says God transferred him. This again implies that God transferred Enoch out of here, straight out of the cosmos, the earthly side of the cosmos, that is, into the heavenly side straight out of this side of the created cosmos, this created creature word side. So what the PT majors in on this as a testimony was that Enoch was transferred to God by faith. That's where this whole epistle is going. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Live by faith, by faith. And it's going to be illustrated from 1035 all the way to 12.3. But Enoch was like everybody else in one regard. Listen carefully to this, because this is where the blade is getting very, very sharp. Faith, please notice, is an assurance and a conviction which is like confidence. And confidence, according to Hebrews 10.35, carries with it a great reward. And this is evinced in the case of Enoch as a reward for his faith. This is how it comes across. As a reward for his faith, God transferred him out of here without seeing death. That's one of the blessings. What, how, imagine that. You got up and said, Lord, will you bless me today? And he said, yeah, I'm going to bless you today. I'm taking you out of here without death. Whoa. I would need at least 200 years to get, to get things squared away that well before he did that for me, I think. But this is evinced in his case. God transferred Enoch to the Godward side of the universe without Enoch seeing or experiencing death, which means death isn't a necessary thing because of sin. If it were, he would have had to die. But he didn't have to die because death is not a necessary happening because of sin. We don't die because it's necessary because of sin. Jesus died because it was necessary for him to die because of sin. You don't die that way. That's not why we die. If that were the case, Enoch 
who pleased God was still a sinner because the Bible says all sinned in Romans 3.23. All sin. Everybody sins in Romans 5.12 with the exception of the sinless one, Jesus Christ. So it shows here that death isn't absolutely necessary to die because of sin. Enoch, therefore, was rewarded by his believing, by leaving without experiencing death. But Enoch was also like everybody else in this regard. Enoch did not die, nor will you die, the death that only Jesus died. So even though you might not have the privilege of Enoch, and you might, because the Lord could come, and when he comes, he ends our time in this place without dying, if you're still alive, when he appears the second time. And that's not the rapture as it's being taught by idiots. That's when Jesus comes to restore all things according to Acts 3.19-21. to That's a different thing altogether. It's still imminent. But it's not just the rescue of a few lucky lottery winners. It's the restoration of all things, the resurrection of all mankind, the universal salvation applied by Jesus Christ to all creation, the liberation of the cosmos from entropy to glory, etc., that's what I'm expecting. You can expect a disappearance if you want. I'm ashamed of some of my pastoral colleagues because they've been around long enough to get this right and they're still writing books about the rapture as if a few are going to be left behind and all that kind of stuff and people are going to disappear and have it on their phones. Oh look, there's a UPS driver. Boom, he's gone. Thank God he delivered my package first. So. It's, there's a lot of BS there. You have to have a Bachelor of Science to understand it. But Enoch, you may not have the privilege that Enoch had to get out of this life without dying, but you do have, along with Enoch, and Enoch along with you, the privilege of not dying, the death that Jesus died, which is the wages of sin. None of us have to die that death, whether you believe it or not. And so Enoch... If death was the exclusive way out of here, then Enoch would not have been transferred without seeing or experiencing death as his end or exit. But Enoch was also like everybody else in this regard. Enoch, of the seventh generation from Adam, did not die the death that only Jesus died, tasting death as the wages of sin for everyone so that no one would experience that death. Enoch was an exception to physical death because physical death is not connected to sin. And therefore it is not the only way that this life in this time and in this half of the created cosmos comes to a close. If, as our expectation hopes, he comes in our lifetime, we won't see death either. We won't experience it. Our, our end will come by a direct encounter with Jesus Christ. And we will be caught up with those who have already died and been resurrected to meet the, cloud, meet the Lord in the clouds and ever be with the Lord in the new creation. So, let's close. Let's call Paul. Let's see. One, two, three, five, 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 five. Hello, Paul. What do you think? Could you speak English, by the way, Paul? We don't know. Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek here, most of us. What do you say, Paul? Well, let me show you a mystery. We will not all sleep, 
but we will all be changed until it's by phalanx. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Hebrews 9, 27 is speaking of the usual principle. If and when people die, they only die once. We will all be changed means that all of humanity will undergo the radical bodily alteration that will replace corporeal mortality and corporeal immortality will take the place and it will replace bodily corruptibility with bodily incorruptibility. This change occurs both to those who die physically and to those who are changed without experiencing corporeal death. So whether we're changed through physical death or through the change without experiencing physical death, we can be assured that when Christ died for all, then all died already in him. This means that we all died with Christ to sin, though only Christ died for sin. Get it? Only Christ died for sin, but we all died to sin when he died. You died and your life is hid with Christ in God, says Colossians 3.3. Christ is now our life. And our life and livingness is a participation with Christ. So, because I studied my brains out this week and to the point of exhaustion many times, I have much more to say, but I'm not going to say it now because it's at the end of our time together. But I will give you a preview of coming attractions. The being offered up of Christ once for the assuming of the judgment of the sins of many, having been completed, and it has been, to tell us to die, makes it certain and imminent that he will appear a second time with salvation. The Son of Righteousness is about to arise with healing, that means salvation, in his wings or rays. This is judgment is imminent upon the death of human beings. So the second appearing of our great archpriest is imminent because his sacrifice and offering has been accepted. The new covenant community is right to have and hold this imminent expectation. We're right to have an imminent expectation and to share the intense anticipation of the creation for the apocalypse of the sons of God in Romans 8:19. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, which are the first fruits, meaning there's going to be a universal harvest when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who is to be poured out on all flesh, are right to have and hold the imminent expectation of the redemption of our bodies. Not only are we right to expect the redemption of all creation from its slavery to corruption, if we don't have that imminent expectation, we are in some measure grieving the Holy Spirit because he is in us groaning, making intercession for us, and groaning and sharing our own expectation. And so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, our expectation is for your, the imminent second appearing of our great archpriest. We know he's entered in once and for all and for all of us that you have accepted his sacrifice and his offering that he is before you now for us. That he will appear a second time without sin bringing salvation 
Father, we expect this as our image expectation. We do not expect the disappearance of a few billion people and the leaving of a few more billion to be judged. We expect our judge who is judged in our place and our great archpriest who represents us all to come bringing universal salvation to all the universe. And we anticipate this time with great expectations. So bless us as we go forth from here today and may we truly be vessels through which your life flows to others. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.